Welcome, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True and creator and co-host of the Inner MBA program. It's my delight to share with you this exclusive Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO podcast series. The series is built from interviews that Soren Gordhammer, co-host of the Inner MBA, and I have conducted over the past three years. The series features over 40 transformational CEOs from around the world, running a diverse range of companies, all with a shared mission, that business be a force of collective good. These conversations are rich and meaningful, open and candid about personal failures, discoveries under pressure, and breakthroughs. They feature leaders who have faced enormous workplace challenges and have emerged as inspiring wisdom figures, bringing a depth of real-world insight to our work together in the Inner MBA. I've gleaned so many practical ideas from these conversations, and I trust you will too. Thanks in advance for listening, and please let us know about your experience with the Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO Podcast Series. Tonight, we are going to be talking with Joey Bergstein, who is the CEO of Seventh Generation, the largest manufacturer of eco-friendly cleaning supplies in the United States, based in Vermont. Joey joined Seventh Generation in 2011 and was appointed to the position of CEO when the company was acquired by Unilever in 2016. Joey, uh, thanks so much for making the time. I know this is an expansive time at Seventh Generation, and I'm just grateful that you're taking the time here to join us. Thank you. Oh, Tammy, it's a pleasure to be with you and be with all and of you. I was uh, sharing with Joey, and I'm going to share with all of you. Let me tell you how I heard about Joey Bergstein. You'll probably remember a few months ago, Lorna Davis, the former CEO of Danone, was one of our featured CEOs in one of our storytelling sessions. So when I first met Lorna and I started talking to her, there was this immediate kind of connection where I was like, oh my God, you're the perfect CEO luminary to be part of the inner MBA. Are there any more animals like you out there in the jungle anymore? Uh, are there any other people who have this, you could say, uh, dual makeup as a person, super capable at running a company and super steeped in an inner journey, a wisdom journey. And immediately without missing a beat, Lorna said, you have to invite Joey Bergstein, you have to. He's perfect for the inner MBA. And uh, that's how we got right here to this moment and Joey's generosity of heart to say yes, so thank you. Okay, so for people who are just getting to know you for the first time, mm -hmm. I'm gonna ask you to share a little bit of your life story if you will, from two different arcs. 
one arc, a professional arc, so people can understand your professional trajectory. But then after that, I'd also like to hear if you could just share with us a bit about your inward journey as a person, or you could say your personal growth journey, or how you came to be the kind of person Lorna Davis would look at me and say, you have to invite Joey. Sure. All right. Well, should we start with the easier one? Yeah. Which is the, the professional one? Yeah. So I was born and bred in uh, Canada and started my career there. Um, actually, my, my first um, business was a um, car cleaning business that I started myself during, uh, during college, White Glove Car Care, which was, um, which was an awesome way to make money while one's at college. And um, it led me into a, uh, a summer internship at Procter & Gamble, which was a total accident. Never heard of Procter & Gamble before and um, thought that would be an interesting place to learn about how to build a business. But basically, I, I spent the first 10 years of my career at Procter & Gamble. I started in Canada. I got bored after a couple of years and said, hey, I'd really love to go do something internationally. And I convinced them somehow to send me to France. I spent a couple of years in France. Uh, and then um, they asked me to go to London. I spent about four years in London doing some interesting things. And then, um, and then Cincinnati. Cincinnati wasn't like Paris, London, or Toronto. Um, so that didn't last for that long. But uh, it was a, a great way to start one's career because I learned all about um, all the different categories of products actually that we sell today at Seventh Generation. So I started on Always as my first job. My dad loved that. Um, and uh, so I learned all about feminine hygiene. I worked on Pampers. I worked in hair care. I worked in, um, uh, in all the home care categories. And it was, it was just a fabulous grounding in the world of, of package goods. And then the second uh, part of my career was in beverage alcohol. So I was recruited from P&G back to Canada to work at a company there called Molson. Um, for those of you not familiar with Molson, it's kind of like the Budweiser of Canada. They uh, enjoyed a duopoly with another great Canadian company called Labatt. And uh, I was doing business development with them for a couple of years, which was uh, just an absolute crazy period of time. And, uh, and then was recruited to a company called Diageo, which is the largest spirits company in the world, where um, for most of my time at Diageo, I was running their global rum portfolio. The biggest brand in that portfolio is a brand called Captain Morgan. And we took their rum business from about 500 million when I got there to about a billion dollars five years after uh, five years later. Um, did a, an amazing acquisition of a phenomenal Guatemalan rum called Zacapa while I was there, which was really my first introduction to the world of social commerce and really introduced me to the idea that you could do good in business um, by doing by doing well. And so I can tell that story a little bit later if we want. Um, I, I then made a, a big decision. I'll come back and talk about that decision when I do the personal arc. Um, but I made a big decision that I really had gone to this point in my life where I felt like I had done some good things in the world of business, but I wasn't really making the world a better place. And I felt this very deep legacy uh, and a real need to, to be making the world a better place in my life. Um, I also spent a lot of my career, 20 years of my career, working inside very big companies, but always looking for the most entrepreneurial thing I could possibly do inside these big companies and thought, well, this is just ridiculous. I'd like to go work at a small business. And uh, a mutual friend introduced me to the CEO of Seventh Generation at the time, who was looking for a head of marketing. 
And so I joined uh, just about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, uh, as the head of marketing. Um, within a couple of years, I became the general manager. So I was as well as the head of marketing, which was a lot of fun, actually, because I got to mark my own homework, um, which was which was amazing. Uh, I highly recommend that if you can get that gig. Um, but I was basically looking after the whole seven generation business at that point in time. The CEO was very focused on uh, external relations and, and building out a, a broader portfolio of, of businesses within the seven generation family. And then uh, we decided to sell the business to Unilever just about four years ago. And I transitioned into the CEO role um, at that point in time. And the business is, it's been an amazing run. I mean, seven generation has been the highlight of my career. Um, and yeah, I guess that's kind of normal as, as you progress in your career, you hope things get better and better, right? Um, but not just because, not just positionally, I think just the ability to work on a business that really is trying to make a big difference in the world um, and to be able to take it, it was about 140-ish million dollars when I got there. Um, we're about a half a billion dollar business today. Uh, we've doubled it in the last four years and have turned around profitability. But, but mostly I'm, I'm really proud of the way that we've stayed true to the mission and the values of the company and have really been able to uh, prove the case that business can be a force for good. It must be a force for good in my view. Um, we've been able to, we run very independently um, as, a, as an operation. I think Unilever has been a phenomenal owner because they recognize that the best thing they could do with a business like Seven Generation is allow us to stay true to the mission and values of the company, continue to grow. Um, and when you've got a business that's growing at about 20% a year, you don't want to do anything to disrupt it. Um, but what I would say above and beyond that, if I look back at the last four years and, and one of the things I'm the most proud of is we've done an amazing job of infecting the host. And uh, so it was a dream when, <laughs> when we sold the business to Unilever that we could have an impact on Unilever itself. And at the, at the time, uh, the company, Seventh Generation wasn't for sale. We weren't trying to sell the business at all. But when Unilever approached us, we thought, you know, if we were ever to sell this business, the only company we could ever imagine selling it to was Unilever, who is a leader in the world of sustaining, uh, sustainability. And when we thought about Unilever, we thought, well, for a company like Seven Generation, which is really trying to change the way that the business is done, this was an opportunity for us to go from impacting millions of people here in the US to potentially billions of people around the world. And as we were saying it, I have to say, you know, in all honesty, it felt like a little bit of a line. Um, and it, it felt a little bit like we were trying to convince ourselves and all of our employees that this is, you know, this is the greater mission. It was, it was absolutely my, 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 my dream and my conviction that we would be able to do it. Um, but when you say something over and over again, at some point you kind of feel like, am I just saying a line? Is this really going to happen? And, you know, I would say this past September was one of the highlights for me when the head of Unilever's home care business, and so seven generations part of the, the, the broader Unilever home care business, we are their home care business in America. They had actually sold their home care business in America about 10 years before they bought seventh generation. So you, would, you might know some of their brands. Um, Persil is a brand that's out there in the marketplace that used to be a Unilever brand. It's still owned by Unilever in many markets. Um, anyways, there's a number of big brands. But outside of North America, they have a $10 billion home care business around the world. And in September, the head of the global home care business made a big announcement that they were shifting their R&D agenda 
to what he calls clean futures. The clean futures agenda looks at how to get to zero waste, uh, zero greenhouse gas, 100% biodegradability, um, using what they describe as the carbon rainbow, what, what we describe as eliminating greenhouse gas. But they've basically taken the seventh generation approach to developing products and are applying it to these very big mainstream businesses. And, um, and he very freely, as they were making this announcement, talk about the fact that it's all inspired by the seventh generation agenda. And so, you know, it may not be the most politically sensitive thing to say in the middle of a pandemic, but, you know, to talk about infecting the host, but the host has clearly been infected and it has been really amazing to actually see us being able to have a big impact on a, a multi-billion dollar company that is already a leader in the space. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's where we are today. I, I think that as I reflect on where we are today as a business, um, in many ways, we're truer to our mission today than we were five years ago. Uh, we spend more money on advocacy in trying to take stances on issues that we care about than we ever have in the past. And um, uh, we've, we've had a, a really transformational effect, I think, in many ways on issues that we care deeply about climate justice, ingredient disclosure, chemical safety reform, um, you know, just to, to name the ones that are, are probably most top of mind for, for issues that we care about, in addition to being able to build a strong, robust business that, that, that's pretty profitable. So that's, um, that's been my career journey. Sorry for that. No, that's uh, perfect. Answer. And <laughs> perfect. And you, I think you shared a lot there that I think will tease out uh, more as we get deeper into the questions, but let's talk about you for a moment, Joey. Yeah, me. Let's talk about you. So, um, you know, I would say I, um, you want to know about my personal leadership journey. Is that, is that, yeah. is that, is that what you're trying to get at? So yeah. I would say I, I've always been inspired by kind of my fact of life and, you know, my, my, my primary identity which is I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. Uh, my mom lost her entire family to the Holocaust. She emigrated to Canada when she was 12 years old uh, to live with a, an aunt who had emigrated uh, before the war. And um, I grew up in a small town outside of Toronto, so not in Toronto. Uh, and the town was, you know, I was, I was most of the time the only Jewish kid in my class. Uh, sometimes the only Jewish kid in the school. Uh, and so always felt like a little bit of an outsider. Um, and so on the one hand, I think that's actually made me a really good marketer. You know, why I could actually walk into a business like always uh, and understand how you can uh, seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Because uh, you, you start from, from, when you start as an outsider, you really start by really trying to understand what's going on around you and you don't make any assumptions about anything. And I think that that, that for me, has come from a very early age. Um, and the, the second thing about my, you know, kind of my fact of life um, is that I've always felt this legacy to leave the world a better place than I found it. And I think through my career, you know, it's interesting. I, I often talk, I was just actually talking to my, my graduating, well, not my graduating class, the, the school that I graduated from in Canada, uh, you know, actually exactly 30 years ago, I was speaking to the graduating class last week and I told the story about my father, my, you know, my 
my, my very deep career conversation with my father, right? So I had this, you know, in this very non-Jewish town, I had this very traditional Jewish upbringing and, you know, the, the circle of people that I had around me were, was very limited, right? So being a success meant you were either a doctor, a lawyer, or you ran your own business. And so my career conversation with, went, with my father went something like, Joey, you know, you suck at science, so you're not going to be a doctor. That leaves law or business, so take your pick. And so my dad was a lawyer, and there was no way that I could contemplate the idea of actually, you know, practicing law with my father. There was just, I just mentally couldn't imagine it. And for whatever reason, I just assumed that if I was going to do that, there would be some familial obligation that I would feel compelled to actually go work with him. So that just left me with one choice, which was to go run my own business. And, um, and so as I got into business, it was always kind of at odds. Well, I wouldn't say it was at odds, but I kind of parked this notion of making the world a better place and said, well, that's something I'll do when I'm older, you know, because I could look up and see a lot of people who were investing a lot of money in charity and doing, you know, doing really great things at, at a later stage in their life. And that was kind of the model that I had as my, as my own personal model for how one goes through life. You know, you go, you make a little bit of money and then, and then you are able to spend your time doing other things. And I got to this moment in my, in my life when I was working at Diageo and I, I had, I, there's two things were really going on for me. So one, my youngest daughter, Rachel, was diagnosed with celiac disease when she was seven years old. And, um, and as we, we researched it, and that was 10 years ago. So, and at that point in time, gluten-free food was terrible. Um, and it was a real hunt to find anything that was decent. Um, it wasn't people, you know, gluten-free eating wasn't a craze. And so, you know, actually lecturing uh, people every time you went into a restaurant about, you know, so are the French fries gluten-free? Oh, of course they are. Well, are they fried in the same fryer as your chicken nuggets? Well, yeah. Well, then they're not gluten-free. So, I mean, that was kind of life at that moment in time. And so in those moments, we were doing a lot of research trying to figure out what's the strange thing and, you know, that our child's been diagnosed with. And what I realized is that Celiac disease today is five times more prevalent than it was 50 years ago. And it's not just because we know how to diagnose it. It's, you know, when they normalize for that, the, the prevalence in society is five times greater than it was then. And a lot of that's just driven by the shifts and the changes in our food systems. And what it, I came to really realize was this, the whole world of unintended consequences that we innovate to move ahead, but we often innovate without thinking about what's the implication of that innovation. And, and celiac is actually one of, those, one of those unintended consequences of what we've done in our, in our food systems. There's another great one. What, my head of R&D, one of the brightest guys that you know, I've ever worked with, and I've worked with some amazing people in R&D. Um, when he was a 24-year-old scientist at P&G, he was given this brief. The brief was, he was working on, I think it was Olay, um, the Olay business. He, the brief he was given on was, to go create the microbead. And what they wanted to do is to create something that, that felt like it was exfoliating. They gave that skin feel that when you rubbed it into your face that it was really giving you a deep clean. And so he, he invented the microbead. His name is on the patent. Well, nowhere on that brief was what happens at the end of life? What happens when you use those, you know, that, that thing on your face and it goes down the sink? And now what we know today, obviously, is that it ends up in our lakes and our water systems and it's, you know, inside fish and it's polluting the world that we live in. So he's at seventh generation doing penance. So I'm, I'm grateful for his, uh, for the early days, but it's another great example of unintended consequences of the innovation that we do. 
And so, so I was having this real moment, just kind of just really thinking and understanding about unintended consequences and what was going on with my daughter. And then I picked up this, um, the New York Magazine one weekend, and I read this article, which, you know, I can still visualize the cover of the magazine. It was, they were, they were writing about freshmen. Uh, it, was, it was about hazing um, in fraternities. And they told the story about this, um, this young man that was found dead after a night of alcohol poisoning and lying beside him was a bottle of Captain Morgan rum. And so that was my brand. And so I felt like, what are you doing with your life? You're not making the world a better place. And there's every reason to believe that you could put the things that you know, you've learned in the 20 years that you've had inside these great companies to work to actually make the world a better place. And so for me, that was, that was a real impetus. And so I would say, was I a dire hard environmentalist when I went to seventh generation? You probably want to believe I was, but I wasn't. Um, I was a person who really wanted to figure out how I can make a difference in the world um, I care deeply about the environment, about climate change, about the next generations. And I wanted to find my way to have an impact. And, you know, kind of opportunity and intent came together for me at seventh generation uh, in a really beautiful way. And I would say, for me, that was the thing that got me to seventh generation. Uh, the thing that I've loved about my time there has been finding a way to create this virtuous circle of you know, having a very strong and powerful mission to change the world and being able to turn that into a powerful business and to the, and, and really complete the circle by knowing that when you've created something that is able to create a powerful business, you can invest the proceeds of that back into the mission so you can actually do more good in the world. And being able to crack that code, uh, that code was a really powerful thing. And, you know, I, I always joke, um, that when I got to seventh generation, it was a not-for-profit, both literally and figuratively. Um, and li literally, um, Jeffrey Hollander, who's an amazing, amazing, amazing human being, one of the most inspiring people I know, um, and I learn a lot from him every time I have a conversation with him. I just, I love my time with him. He, he came to visit us, you know, I think about, I don't know, maybe two quarters after we, um, you know, we were, I was at seventh generation and we had this community meeting. We, we call our employees our community. We had a community meeting and um, we were talking about profit and that we had actually delivered some profit. And you know, when he got up to, to speak, he said, you know, it was really great to hear what you guys are doing. I, you know, I never really cared about profit before. It just wasn't a thing for me. I, just, you know, I, I wanted to create this business that was doing good in the world. And, you know, whether we made money or not was totally irrelevant. And I think that you can't have a sustainable business unless you have a sustainable financial, um, a sustainable financial set of financials. And so it all does need to come together if you really want to um, have a powerful impact in the world. You know, Unilever never would have bought seven generation if the business wasn't profitable or if they couldn't figure out how to make it profitable or more profitable. And so those things are, are really important, important things. So I feel like... Um, you know, what, what's, what's continually propelled me through my career has been this notion of improving the world. You know, I, I often talk about my purpose is, is, is sparking an amazing force for good in the world. And sparking is important for me because it talks about the way that I like to work. I like to work with people. I spark off of people. I don't necessarily walk in with the best idea, but I know a good idea when I hear it and I can build on it. And, and for me, that's all of the fun is, is in that. 
Um, and then an amazing force for good in the world is, you know, I, I never liked taking on a brief where you, you're just trying to make marginal improvement in a business. Growing a business one or 2% is the most boring thing in the world to me. What a waste of, of time in my view. Um, I really want to work on things where I'm either turning something around that wasn't working or accelerating something that has a lot of potential. And I want to make sure that the things that I'm working on really matter in the world. That matter to us as people, that matter to society uh, on the whole. And so I always view the lens of what we're doing at Seventh Generation um, through, the, through the lens of, are we making a difference in the world? Are we doing things that people will look at and say, that's super cool, I want to be part of that. And it's always struck me that whether our business is growing 40% or declining 20%, um, you know, I feel like when I stand up in front of our community, the eyes glaze over when I talk about numbers. But as soon as I stand up and talk about what we're doing about to take a stance on climate justice or racial equity or ingredient disclosure, people lean forward in their seats because they want to be involved in that. That's, that's what they want to be part of. And if you can create something that people want to be a part of, you, you really are able to create a really passionate group of people who will, of course, do the right thing to drive a business. But the business comes as a result, not the, not the result as the main event. Um, if you will. And so that, that's really been the way that I've, that I've approached how we grow this business. All right, Joey, I have a lot of questions for you. When you left the rum world and you went to seventh generation at the yeah. time, seventh generation was barely making a profit, it sounds like. Did you feel, oh my God, I'm taking a risky step right now. I'm, uh, you know, this company, the rum company had, you know, gone, uh, its sales had increased so much. And here you were going into, you know, toilet paper and stuff, breaking even? Did you think this is, I'm doing this to take one for the team, to do good in the world? You know, it's funny. I don't know. I have to ask my wife if I was concerned about it. I never really thought about it as a risk because I looked at the business and I saw the potential. And, you know, it was at a time where, I mean, the business wasn't tiny. I mean, it was over a hundred million dollars. I mean, that's, that's pretty successful by a lot of measures. It, was, it wasn't really growing. So that was the only thing that was kind of concerning. But I could look at it on shelf and say, oh, my God, that packaging is horrible. You know, I can fix the packaging. You mean, who are they talking to? Like the, the, you could, you could, I could taste the growth. And so, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it was just, you know, kind of an abundance of confidence. I don't know. Um, but I could see that I could really make a difference in the business. And I was really hungry to do something that mattered. And it was more important for me to go do something that was going to make a big difference than to continue doing what I was doing. I mean, I feel like, you know, you double a business from 500 million to a billion dollars. You feel like, okay, well, I did what I needed to do. I actually, you know, in many ways, it's kind of a similar place. We've taken it to a half a billion dollars. You know, the next step is going from a half billion to a billion. You know, that's going to take a completely different way of thinking about it. And, um, you know, it's another inflection point, if you will. Um, but yeah, so the, for me, the bigger risk was actually staying and doing what I was doing and not growing um, than it was um, stepping out and doing something different. Okay. And you came in as a marketing officer. And yeah. you know, one of the uh, offerings in the Inner MBA has been an accelerator program on conscious marketing. And I'm wondering how you view conscious marketing, what that is to you, what the principles are when you think of, okay, we're going to approach this as a, as a company that markets its products consciously? Well, that's a good question. Um, I've never really thought about it as conscious marketing. 
So I can tell you how I've thought about the marketing and, I, and I, there's a high degree of consciousness in the way we've approached it. Um, I will say one of the things that um, to the chagrin of many um, is really interesting actually inside seven generation when I got there, there's all these stories about, about how our products are better, better for you, better for the world. And um, coming from a place like PNG, you know, and from Diageo, PNG, that it was, it was, you come from a place where you don't say anything without claim support, um, because there's a big risk of, of, of lawsuit. So I, you know, got a lot of training in claim support. I, you know, I, I'm very adept at being able to how to word things so that they are legal and defensible. At Diageo, I got a lot of schooling in the world of. Um, the, the business code of responsibility. So the, the risk in beverage alcohol marketing is it's an industry that's self-regulated. And so you hold yourself back from doing things because you don't want to be regulated. And so, you know, again, I spent a lot of time kind of working through what's the, the marketing code at Diageo and identifying you know, how do you communicate an idea in a way that is, that is consistent with the values of the company whether you agree with those values or not, um, they actually do have a very high standard on, on what's okay and what's not okay. And that, you know, that, that bar continues to raise. And so I would say that when I learned, this is going somewhere, by the way, um, <laughs> what I learned at PNG was all about these products and categories that seventh generation competes in. What I learned at Diageo was a lot about lifestyle marketing because people buy into alcohol brands because, you know, the sad truth is most of these brands are marketed at guys and guys look at them as a male cosmetic, the beer that they hold or the rum that they drink says something about who they are. And, and it's lifestyle, it's lifestyle marketing. And so seventh generation is actually an interesting combination of the two things. So we sell products that people need that, you know, you need clean clothes, you need clean dishes. You need to know that these products are going to work. And for a long time, there's this reputation that green doesn't clean. Um, but ultimately they buy into seven generation because who we are and what we stand for, they buy into us for our values. And so what we're always doing is really trying to figure out what's the balance and how we communicate our values and the product efficacy. Yeah. I, I, I always remember six months after I joined seventh gen, I was speaking to a group, um, like this. And at the end, somebody put their hand up and they said, you know, I just want to tell you that I love seventh generation. I've been using this brand since long before it ever worked. And, you know, <laughs> you know, and there was a long period of time where our products didn't work. You know, Jeffrey tells me that people used to spend a lot of money to walk around in dirty clothes <laughs> because they buy into, into what we are and what we stand for. And, um, and so that's always you know, been very high in my consciousness. And so when we do things like take big stances on ingredient disclosure or chemical safety or climate justice, and we do it in a public way, I know it's the right thing to do. And I know that when I take a stance like that, people are going to respect the company for that and that ultimately are going to win their loyalty. We know that people who know our mission are twice as likely, two and a half times to be exact, twice, two and a half times more likely to be loyal to the brand. They think our, our products smell better and they think they work better when they know our mission. And so, it, you know, those kind of knowing things like that actually makes it easier to do the right thing in many ways. Um, but to your point around consciousness, I think, and I'll come back to what I was saying when I came in, um, there was a large narrative at seven generation about all these great things that we did. And then when 
I said, okay, well, let's get this down on paper because I'm not going to say anything I can't prove. A lot of the narrative went away <laughs> um, and you were able to get to the really real. And so for me, we've been really um, vigilant in ensuring that we are saying things that are 100% true. We worked very closely with the USDA while I was there on their, um, the USDA bio-based program because I didn't want to just say natural laundry detergent without being able to tell people what that meant because everybody was saying stuff like that and most of it was BS. And so working with USDA, we were able to say, okay, 98% of these ingredients come from a bio-based source, a plant-based source, as opposed to a petroleum-based source. I'm going to put that on the label right beside the word natural so that when I say natural laundry detergent, people know what I'm talking about. And uh, ingredient disclosure. So I didn't invent ingredient disclosure. We've been disclosing ingredients since 2008. It's not required by law. But the fact that you actually freely label on the back of a package, and in fact, at one point in time, we have and even today on, on some of our packages that are very small, you have this fold out label, which is twice as much material as you need. So it doesn't, and that doesn't come for free, by the way, um, to be able to have enough space to be able to label here are the ingredients and not just what the ingredients are, but what they actually do and where they're plant derived or where they're synthetic. And we disclose what's synthetic and what's not. I mean, we're really clear that, you know, right now there aren't any real viable um, preservatives in the U.S. marketplace that come from plant-based sources. So we're working hard to create one. We're working with the EPA to get them registered, but there aren't. So, but, so we disclose that we use, you know, this ingredient, it's less than 2% of the formula, but we have to use it in order to be able to preserve it because you don't want a product that's contaminated with a whole bunch of, you know, fungus growing inside it. Um, but you have the right to know that that stuff's inside. And so, for me, when I think about, you know, kind of being conscious about the marketing, I think it's about being transparent and being real and not getting caught up in, in your own hype and trying to say things because you think they're the right thing to say without knowing what's real. You know, we've, we've actually looked at a number of different brands at, at a time when we were doing acquisitions where we actually stopped an acquisition because when we did the analysis, what was in their bottle wasn't what was on the back of the label. And they had no idea. You know, they thought they were actually doing the right thing, but they just, you know, they just had no idea what their contract manufacturer was actually putting in their, in their package. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there's, there's, there's an authenticity that is really critical to have, um, especially if you want to take a, a stance in the kinds of places that, that we do as a business. The last thing you want somebody to do is to say, well, you know, you're saying X, but here you're doing Y. And um, so that, that for us has been, uh, has been really important. You know, and, and I think has allowed us to weather um, class action lawsuits that come your way because the whole industry attracts class action lawsuits and you know, to be able to navigate those through in a way where you feel like, yeah, we're, we're, we're really true to what we're saying on the labels, um, you know, leaves you feeling like you're doing the right thing. I wanted to ask you, Joey, about a couple of things I learned about seventh generation that I was curious about. That I was like, huh, how does that work? And, and here's one of them, that a portion of compensation is tied to reaching sustainability goals. Yeah. So is that true for everybody who works at the company? And how do you figure this out? A hundred percent. And it's one of the things I'm the most proud of. Um, and I'm really proud that I have been able to convince Unilever that it's so important to our culture that they maintain it. 
And it's a real pain in their ass that we do because it's, it's, it's different from the way that they set their compensation systems for everybody else. So 100% of people are eligible for a bonus. Um, that's not shocking. Uh, obviously, the you know, percentage of your salary that's bonus you know, varies depending on your level. That's also not unusual. Um, the, so most of the bonus, 80% of the bonus is determined by sales and profit delivery. That's not unusual. 20% is based on delivering our sustainability and advocacy goals. And every year we go through a process, I, we negotiate our sales profit, our sales goals, our profit goals, um, and we negotiate our sustainability and advocacy goals. It, and it's really based on, we have goals that we've set around, uh, there's eight different goals that we have set to 2025 and 2030 in terms of how we continue to make progress on our carbon footprint, on our plastic footprint, on our um, on equity, for example, and, and it goes on. Um, and so we've got a roadmap on each of those goals for how do we ensure that we're making progress against each of those every single year. And so every year we look at, okay, well, what's the, what's the most important thing for us to do in the year ahead? And we, we set a goal around that. So generally, I can't remember exactly how many goals we have this year. If I thought about it for a few minutes, we probably do. I think there's probably four goals right now that make up that 20%. So 5% each is four goals. Um, two of them in the world of advocacy and two of them in the world of product sustainability. And um, so they're determined by the roadmap. We have a social mission board, which was, which was created as after we sold the business to Unilever. It was a condition of the sale. Um, we're in the process of extending it beyond its initial five-year life. Uh, Lorna sits on our social mission board, which is how I got to know Lorna. She's been amazing. Um, and um, so we take our goals to that social mission board and, and we have a really good debate. They, they raise the bar on us often and we end up agreeing a goal and, and it drives real change. I mean, I can tell you that when you're in the fourth quarter of the year and you're trying to deliver your sales goal and your profit goal, and by the way, the people who I work for at Unilever want to make sure I deliver my sales and profit because that affects the delivery of everybody else's bonus in the business. Um, the, but I've got a sustainability goal on top of that. This happened in December. And so one of the goals we had in December was we wanted to qualify um, one of our suppliers on their, their use of um, RSPO certified palm kernel oil. I, I don't know, there's probably too many acronyms in that, but we source palm kernel oil. It's responsible, it comes through um, this, this, this organization that certifies it, that it's been grown responsibly. And, um, and then there's a particular brand of certification that is you know, kind of a level up from the basic level. And we wanted to ensure that we had a company certified. Well, last year through COVID was insane. I mean, we spent the whole year in a constant state of triage. That's the plate word. You know, you could call it whack-a-mole. We could probably call it a whole bunch of other things. But, you know, suffice it to say, we were chasing demand and really trying to, to fulfill demand throughout the whole year. And to be honest, our supply team lost sight of, of this goal. And we're in the fourth quarter. The manufacturer that we're trying to, to, um, to qualify is way behind on meeting demand on a couple of critical products that we needed to sell to be able to deliver our ever escalating goals throughout the year last year. And, um, and we needed them to stop the line so they could do a qualification. I can tell you, there's no way in a million years I would have done that in the fourth quarter of this past year if that wasn't one of the goals that we needed to deliver for our employees to get their bonus. 
And, you know, and so, and, and that is not the only example I have. I can give you example after example of where that's been the case because it's too easy to, to, to be clear about what the right thing to do is. It's very easy to set goals, very easy. It's much more difficult to hold the tension on delivering those goals and baking it in, in a way, I mean, it holds me accountable, right? When I know that if I'm gonna miss delivering on our employees bonus because of a decision I make, I mean, it makes me think hard about the decisions I'm making. So I hold, it holds, it's a mechanism for me to hold myself accountable, if you will. And, um, and so that's why we've, we've put it in place. It's been incredibly effective, but some of them have been, you know, honestly, super crazy. So our goal in 2018 that we set, I'll give you a word of context and then, and then you'll understand why the goal was important. When we look at our greenhouse gas footprint, if you look from the field where ingredients are grown through the making of the ingredients, through the uh, making of the products, to the packaging, to the delivery to the stores, to the, you know, carrying them home, to the usage in the home, when you and I are washing and drying our clothes at home or washing and drying our dishes at home, the, the, the collective greenhouse gas footprint, 90% of that actually happens in our houses when we're washing and drying our clothes. And so think about that for a moment. If I got to a zero carbon impact in, in our operations, it still wouldn't come close to offsetting the totality of the impact of our business, opera, of, 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 our, of our total systemic op, uh, impact, if you will. And so we said, well, huh, what did we do about that? Because we can't just let ourselves off at the hook and just create stuff that gets people to use it in their machines. And, you know, of course, they're going to wash their clothes, whether they're using seventh generation or something else, but that doesn't make it okay. So we said, well, the best way to address that is to ensure that people are drawing clean energy from their grids at home. Because if they're drawing clean energy on their grids, then their carbon impact is, you know, is going to be neutralized. So we said, well, what do we do? Because we don't own an energy company. Not yet, anyways, that might come, who knows. Um, but we said, well, if we could actually move cities and states to commit to clean energy, that would be a really important step towards, um, towards to cleaning up our electricity grid. And so we looked at who was doing what in the world and um, we identified a bunch of grassroots organizations who were doing some really cool work. And we said, okay, the goal we're gonna set was to get a hundred cities to commit to clean energy by 2030. So resolutions passed in city councils, basically a uh, hundred of them, hundred cities in the course of a year. And so we set that goal. And I have to say, I felt like that's just batshit crazy. I don't know. I, I'm going to have to over deliver on another goal because there's no way in this world that I, I just don't have control over that. Right. It's so far out of our control, but we spent a million dollars. We worked really closely with a, with a couple of great grassroots organizations that were committed to to this this whole program. The Sierra uh, the Sierra Club was one of them, and um, we did a lot of work, a lot of storytelling, and we moved 108 cities by the end of December 2018 to commit to clean energy by 2030. Now there's 158 cities that made that commitment. We expanded it, I think, last year or the year before to uh, states, and we now have seven states who have made a similar commitment. And you know that's not work that we've done on our own, but it certainly put doing the analysis put a fine point on the change we wanted to create in the world. Setting the goal created conviction that we were going to invest our time, energy, money to be able to ensure that we had an outcome in that goal and that it wasn't just good intention, but it was actually going to deliver an outcome. And the whole ecosystem is delivering a result. 
And so, you know, I think that's, you know, another, another way that that, um, I can tell you that the million dollars that we had earmarked in our budget for the year to spend against that program, if we got into a place where the business wasn't delivering, it was the last million dollars I would cut because mm -hmm. there's no way I would miss on that goal. And, you know, but and, you know, and Joey, I, know I think it does good stuff to build the business. I think a lot of people uh, running a company would say, look, we're responsible for this product that we're making and the ingredients that we use and the packaging and how we're selling it. But we're not responsible for the energy grid that's yeah. uh, people are their washer and dryer are drawing on. That's that's out of our control. I think yeah. that's a very different way. I mean, and you know, we're not going to let ourselves off that easy. Well, I think yeah. a lot of people would have just said that's not in our purview. That's not in our control. That's not what we do. Yeah. So how is it that seventh generation said, no, this is part of what we do? Because we think about how do we have a systemic impact and it's never enough for us just to be better than the worst. Um, it's, it's always about how do we move the industry forward? How do we create change in society? And we, our view is if we hold the bar super high, that this isn't just about growing a business, but really about moving the industry forward, then we will, we will do well by doing well, by setting the bar high. And if all you focus on is yourself, and improving your own operations, then you're never really going to have an impact in the world. And so for us, that, that's really been the, you know, I'll give you a great example. I mean, I spend, you know, one of my favorite things to do with Target, the retailer Target, is spending time talking with their head of sustainability. Um, and they want to talk to us because we think about how do we make systemic change in the world? If all we were thinking about is how do we make products that were a little bit better than, than the others, I wouldn't get five minutes of their time, right? But because we're thinking systemically about how we create change and what's the role that these companies can, can play coming together, they give me a lot of time. And that time gives me way more influence with the buyers, by the way, um, because they want to lean into companies that, that are having an impact you know, that, that's bigger than just the little place that they're, that they're playing in. And so I really, you know, I don't know, call it karma. But I think that when you when you when you're doing the right things and you're really trying to create the right kind of change in the world, then you know the, then good things happen to you along the way. But if you just focus on yourself, then you know nobody nobody wants to just deal with somebody who is uh, who's who's just focused on their own thing. In a little bit, I'm going to open it up to Soren, and we have uh, some people who have already raised their hand. But I have a few more questions, Joey, that I that I want to ask you first. Which sure. is the other thing I read in in learning about seventh generation is that internally you have a self-imposed carbon tax. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, well, again, it's a similar philosophy, which is that we hold ourselves accountable. Um, the carbon tax is actually only on our operations. We're working on that. Um, and we actually have a few ideas, which I'd love to be able to talk about, but they're still in they're still in in progress for how we go and continue to invest to have an impact on the consumer use. But the commitments we make around our advocacy efforts are really intended to address the consumer use portion. But we do um, assign ourselves a, a tax, and we use that money to invest in projects to um, improve our footprint, largely working with our um, our contract manufacturing partners as well to, to help them improve their footprint. So our view on, on greenhouse gases is really, there's, there's three levels that we work on. Um, so one is we hold ourselves accountable through this carbon tax and to improve our own operations. Two, and probably first actually, is, is we work on products and try to create products that have a lower greenhouse gas impact. So a good, a good example of that is um, 
we, we launched a couple of years ago, this ultra concentrated laundry detergent. So the same number of loads as a big hundred ounce bottle of laundry detergent. It's in a little 23 ounce bottle. Um, and it is 75% uh, lighter, 60% less plastic, 50% less water. Um, we put on a, this auto dosing cap um, inspired by the spirits business, not shockingly. Um, so basically once, when, when you squeeze the bottle once and it automatically doses exactly a single dose. So you don't actually have to pour a big bottle into a cap and pour the cap into a machine. So it's way more convenient. And so we market it actually on the convenience. We call it the easy dose laundry. Um, once you've tried it, you'll never want to use a big hundred ounce bottle of laundry detergent again. So it's just so much easier to use. Um, but it has a, a much smaller carbon footprint than, than laundry. I mean, just think about, you know, taking uh, a truck. I mean, we, there's, there's, there's thousands of trucks a year that are shipping laundry detergent around the country. Most of those trucks are filled with water that they're shipping around the country. Totally unnecessary. The only reason why these, why these big bottles of laundry detergent are filled with, with water is because it allows them to command more shelf space. Um, you know, it's, it's totally crazy. Um, so the products that we create are, are, are created with the footprint in, in mind. The, um, I talked about the carbon tax. And then the third thing is our advocacy work and really trying to figure out how do we, uh, how do we advocate for clean energy and try to move, um, move climate justice, move to, uh, move to, a, to a, a, cleaner, um, a cleaner energy world, basically a clean energy transition. Okay, and then uh, my last question for you for now has to do with the inner development that you think is a requirement for someone to lead a business like Seventh Generation. What capacities, if you could call them wisdom-based capacities, do you think are, you just have to have these or you're not gonna be able to do a good job as a conscious business leader at a place like Seventh Generation? Hmm. It's a great question. Um, I don't know. Like I never really thought about myself as being wise per se. I, I think you need to, I mean, our name's inspired by the great law of the Iroquois that in our every deliberation, we must take into account the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. And so I think ultimately you need to be able to think with seven generations in mind and, and with, with the, with the, with the quarter in mind. And you need to be able to move back and forth between those two worlds with fluidity because it's not okay just to think about seven generations from now. And it's not okay just to think about the quarter that, that you're in. You really need to be able to move between these different things and create a business that's vibrant, that's competitive. I've, I've got, you know, P&G is my biggest competitor you know, and they're constantly innovating in our categories. If I don't keep an eye on what they're doing, you know, we would be out of business you know, we've done really well. And so there's a gazillion startups in our space. If I don't keep an eye on what they're doing, you know, we would be out of business. And so you need to be able to be able to think through a, a very near-term lens as well as a much longer-term lens. And you need to think about balancing. Um, I mean, I always put people first, you know, through the pandemic, every conversation started with, you know, as they say on the airlines, put on your own oxygen masks first, take care of yourself, take care of your family, make sure you're taking the space you need to be able to be productive. Because if you're not, then 
um, you know, then you know, you're not good to yourself, you're not good to your family, and you're you're certainly not going to be good to, to seventh generation. And I think taking care of people first is a really important thing. You know, and then in the business, I, I think you just you just constantly need to be able to balance between the short term and the long term, and to be able to think systemically, not just think about how do I create a great business. I mean, it really is about you know, if you can if you can figure out how to move the industry, and then identify well, what role do do you play in that industry movement? Then I think you're able to to create something that's that's truly special. Now, Joey, when you talk about these other competitive companies, PNG coming up with ecological household products, don't we want that? Isn't that good? Don't we want that? Sorry, just for a moment. I mean, believe me, I I have seventh generation with the push top in my lawn. Don't you worry. But don't 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 you worry. But don't we want these other companies coming up and doing their thing and offering more? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, ultimately, our biggest success was, was is becoming irrelevant. But I don't want to be irrelevant. I mean, then I get a job. So we 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 do think about the biggest success being making ourselves irrelevant. But that pushes us to innovate. To say, you know, so when when P and G's copying what I do, that just says, okay, well now I need to do the next thing that they can copy, right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, they'll copy it a couple of years later. And so you got to constantly be pushing ahead. And it's been really interesting when 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 I got to seventh generation, we created, um, we really deeply understood what the job to be done was. And it was very clear that um, if we could move people who understood the value of natural sustainable products, but were still buying conventional home care products to embrace seventh generation, we could create a real business. I never looked at our competitors in the home, the natural sustainable home care space as our competitors. We always saw them as frenemies. I always kept my eye on, and I still do, on what P&G and Reckitt and Clorox are doing and saying, how do I source from them? Because if I can get 10% of the big conventional business, I can make a real business. If I get 10% of Method and Myers, you know, my family's going to starve. And so that was a real mantra. So, and it, and it came into every single thing that we did. So our philosophy was look like them and be like us. You know, there was this whole, you know, sense of green doesn't clean. But what we found is when we were looking at packaging, I could develop a super cool bottle that would be as beautiful or more beautiful than a method bottle. Or I could do something that looked like a traditional dish detergent bottle. And what we would hear people say is, well, I think that the second one actually looks like it could get my dishes clean. So I'm more likely to buy I'm like, huh, well, that's a big insight. And so our packaging isn't the most beautiful packaging in the world. It looks conventional for a reason. We want people to understand and believe that this is going to work. It's going to get the job done. So, you know, look like the category semiotics, you know, but tell our unique story that it performs and is safe for people and planet um, on the label so that they can understand what, what makes us unique and distinct. That has gotten us to where we are. It's not going to get us to where we need to be to go from a $500 million business to a billion dollar business. That is a whole next level of innovation. And I'm really excited about that. So I'm thrilled that all these companies are following us. Um, it just means that we need to, to compete in a, you know, in, a, in a very different way. Um, you know, and I, I know the head of sustainability at p and I used to work for her. She was one of the brightest women I've ever worked for when I was in France. Um, and now she leads their sustainability efforts. So um, you know, I know that they're hot on our tail. Um, so it just means that we need to continue to be nimble and, and innovate ahead if we want to stay relevant. And for sure, I want to stay relevant. All right, Soren. 
Yeah, so many great points here. And I love uh, just to highlight the, the, the vision and purpose you have as a company and that it's actually not about your company. It's about change, cultural change and, and environmental change and how much you, the contacts and friendships and bonds happen through that vision. Um, and the thing that I, I'm touched by, though, is, is when you talk about going from a $500 million company to a billion-dollar company, you talk about, well, that's going to require innovation and, and creative thinking. And I'm wondering, what is your process for creative thinking? <laughs> what is your process like? All right, how do you how do you get in your own innovative mindset? How do you create a team that's innovative mindset? Because there's this constant change, right? And do you have practices? Do you have tools? So when you're when you're looking at that, like, okay, we've got this. This is where we want to go. What's your process for kind of tapping into that? Because I think a lot of us are in that feeling where we we feel like there's this creative new next chapter that we want to going into. But where do we begin to put those pieces together? So I would say if there's one thing I would put my finger on, it would be that we innovate from our mission as opposed to from the consumer white space. And mm -hmm. I think everybody's looking for, you know, ask, what does a consumer want? You know, and Steve Jobs always told us, right? That, <laughs> you know, they don't, you don't, the consumer doesn't know what they want. So how do you figure out what they want? Well, we start with our mission, right? And so our mm -hmm. mission is actually to transform the world into a healthy, sustainable, and equitable place for the next seven generations. And so we really use that as, as the springboard for our innovation program. And so there's three components. So the world kind of speaks to what we have done to Unilever. So you know, kind of that's done. Also our global expansion agenda. Mm -hmm. So you know that's in progress. Still learning a lot about that, but that's a different story. Um, healthy, sustainable, and equitable are three core pillars for what we're trying to do and the change we're trying to create in the world. And you know, I'll tell you that, that one, of, one of the pillars has been really vexing. So equitable is a really mm -hmm. tough one because the truth is that we sell, you know, what we think are healthier cleaning products to healthy, wealthy white people. Um, mm -hmm. Our products aren't cheap. You know, we've been able to grow the business. The closer we're able to get to the conventional uh, pricing, the better the business is mm -hmm. done. And our, our price strategy is to be within 10% of the, of the leading conventional brands, right? So if we can be within 10% of Tide, then, you know, our laundry mm -hmm. detergent sells and it's relatively inelastic thereafter. Um, but if you, because our input costs are so much higher, because mm -hmm. we are, I mean, bio-based ingredients are expensive, creating, using 100% post-consumer recycled content in your, in your packaging, it's expensive. Um, our retailers, we win their support because we give them a bigger margin than the conventional brands do. That's expensive. And so if you really want to create access and be truly equitable, it's really difficult to do that without, without creating products that don't work. Mm -hmm. So it actually pushed us to think differently about um, that, that equitable pillar of our, of our strategy. And so this is something that we're working on. It's still nascent, but I think it'll be a big part of our growth is um, the, the idea was how can we get our products into the hands of people who are the most exposed to toxic cleaning products, people who are cleaning with those products day in and day out. So two years ago, we launched a professional range, we set up a team. We said, let's create a professional range. Let's get our products into the hands of these people. By the way, if you tell an operator, somebody who runs a hotel or a restaurant or an office building, you know, when they have people actually coming back into their spaces, that they've cleaned with seventh generation because they care about their employees, they care about mm -hmm. you as a patron and they care about the planet, then that says something really positive about, about them and their values as well. So there's a little bit of, of, of equity sharing that we're able to do. You know, we think that's a, a great way 
for mm-hmm. us to live into our equity mission. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily have come to it, you know, just by looking at white spaces in the uh, in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And um, is that is that how you try to inspire your team to yeah. to to have the passion and energy that they have to that? Is giving them the, a problem, but showing them how that problem is going to help the planet yeah, and other sure. people. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, the goals that we set around plastic waste elimination. So we set a goal around uh, eliminating, I think it's 50% of the plastic in our laundry products by 2025. We mm-hmm. gave that goal to the innovation team. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, actually, we created an incubator team with that goal in mind. And so they said, okay, well, that's the goal. What are we going to do? And what they discovered was, first of all, if you want to get rid of the plastic, you need to get rid of the liquid because plastic has a very functional reason for being. It contains liquid. It provides a moisture barrier so liquid can't seep through. So that was their first big insight. You need to get rid of, if you want to get rid of the plastic, you need to get rid of the liquid. So we actually created and we launched, and they did it in the space of a year, which was awesome. Um, They launched a zero plastic range. So they're using metal containers with a combination Mm -hmm. of uh, powder tablets and powders um, that are fabulous. So there's a powder toilet bowl cleaner. You sprinkle it in the toilet bowl. It actually foams up, and it creates. It has a great cleaning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's no plastic involved. Uh, oh. You know, there's they, they created a plastic hand wash, which I thought was crazy. So who's going to buy this thing? It actually has this great exfoliating benefit, and people mm-hmm. seem to love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's portable, so you could do it in different sizes. So it wasn't perfect when it was first launched, but you know we gave them the we gave them a challenge. Mm-hmm. It was based in the mission and the change we're trying to create in the world, and they've created something that you know it's small today, but we think it could be a really big part of our growth. That's great. Um, you know, and interestingly, the amount of PR we've gotten from it has been actually one of the great growth drivers mm-hmm. of our business in that in the last year as well. So mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. again, when you when you do the right thing, people people pay attention to it. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to leave your comments on this interview here on the platform. And if there's a socially conscious CEO that you'd like us to interview as part of the Inner MBA, please let us know at innermba at soundstrue.com.